the most important thing when it comes to service and leadership and building up this profile is to start by getting involved. Those basic organizations I mentioned, like National Honor Society, are great for beginning with volunteer work, uh, often in the form of picking up trash at a local park or tutoring children at a local middle school, the sorts of things that might not be standout items on a resume, but can teach students about what they find most important. I found a lot of students who wanted to build their people and communication skills started with tutoring. And a lot of students who are passionate about far larger scale environmental projects started with things as simple as picking up trash at a local park. My advice to students and their parents listening is that as soon as you get involved, you're starting a learning process for discovering what you really care about. And every time you're doing a little bit of work and seeing how things can be done bigger, better, more efficiently, you're getting yourself that much closer to an Ivy League application. From Test Takers, this is the Hashtag Prep Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you learn more about standardized testing and college admissions so that you can help your students navigate this important time with accurate and insightful information. Hosted by Test Takers Director of Development, Andrew Nadiakara, and Director of Personnel, Jeremy Freed. So prepare to learn the secrets that will help your students gain clarity, reduce stress, and work smarter, not harder. This is the Hashtag Prep Podcast. The idea of applying to college may seem as straightforward as compiling your resume, writing your essay, sending your transcript, and of course, your standardized test scores that you did so well on because you listened to hashtag prepped. But we have all of these students applying to all of these colleges with all of these scores, grades, and numbers. But students are more than just numbers, they're people. So how do students convey that in their applications, and what are colleges exactly looking for in their future students? Today on Hashtag Prepped, we are stepping out of the world of test taking and into the realm of college candidacy building. So to help me discuss this today, we have Sasha Chata of Ivy Scholars. He's the founder of this company down in Sugarland, Texas, to help clear up this nebulous idea of creating the perfect college candidate. Sasha, welcome to the show. Can you please introduce yourself and uh, what Ivy Scholars does? Thank you so much, Naka. I really appreciate you having me. By way of introduction, my name is Sasha Chata. I'm the founder and CEO of Ivy Scholars. It's my job to help the families who come to us guide their children on a path through high school to develop top-tier candidacy so that they can go to their dream universities. Ivy Scholars is a small boutique candidacy building and admissions consulting firm. We take students in ninth through 11th grade and help build up their profile, their evidence of intellectual vitality, their community service, their leadership, into something that portrays them as the kind of applicants that their target colleges want to accept. It's our job to keep track of longitudinal development of the students growing over time through one-to-one mentorship so that by the time our students are applying to college, they really feel like they're ready to be Harvard men and women or Princeton men and women or Stanford men and women. So to frame today's conversation, I kind of wanted to start broad and then narrow it in on specific questions many of our students ask, but probably one of the biggest questions is, how heavily does the GPA influence your application? As with all highly technical questions about college admissions, I want to give a caveat before we get into details here. Different universities have different ways of judging candidacy, especially when it comes to transcript evaluation, such as GPA. The answer for most top-tier private schools, including all Ivy League schools, is that GPA is contextualized within class rank, school rank, and other demographic factors like geographic location and ethnicity. So when you're asking how GPA influences an application to an Ivy League school, the answer is, 
it matters quite a bit if you've got a class size of 30 or 3,000, or if you're in rural Arkansas or the uh, wealthier suburbs of Connecticut. In contrast, the vast majority of public schools, even top-tier public schools like the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor or UCLA, will often take GPA as a straight number and not consider demographic factors, class rank, school rank, and so on. A general rule for parents to follow here is that the more competitive the school when it comes to private schools, the deeper they'll read into a transcript. In contrast, public schools generally read transcripts on a surface level. Every year, I see students who've had an academic misstep. Maybe they were accused of academic dishonesty. Maybe they had a family disruption, a divorce, or a death in the family. For some reason or another, their GPA has gone down, and they're in a tough place. These students come to be panicking, but I like to give them a note of comfort here that admissions officers understand teenagers are still children, and they want to find a way to give them the benefit of the doubt. The best avenue students and parents have to ensure this happens is to write an additional personal information section. This is a section of the Common App, the main application portal you'll use for the majority of private schools in the U.S. that allows you to give context to your academic performance. What's important here is to approach this topic in a straightforward manner. You don't need to write a narrative, and certainly no one's looking for a sob story. The right thing to do here is explain mistakes that were made, conditions that made it hard to succeed, the challenges a student faced during high school, the consequences of those challenges, and the growth experience that came after. Now, I want to give students a tip that they might not hear from a lot of other admissions consultants, but I found really helpful in my career. And this is that additional personal information sections should be shared with your school counselor, ideally your counselor and not your teachers, and corroborated within the counselor letter of recommendation. When students are applying to top 75 schools, high school counselors write a letter that explains and contextualizes students' academic performance within the class body, and then they attach something called a school profile, an explanation of what sort of course the school offers, what's an average SAT or ACT at this school, a few details about the way they do GPA, and so on. Generally, these are desultory details. Admissions officers will already have this information in the system and won't give the counselor letter much thought, but... When students have gone through a divorce or a death in the family or an illness or other medical disruption or have been accused of academic dishonesty or something else bad has happened, it's really helpful to have another responsible adult in their corner with whom they can meet, explain their additional personal information section, and ask for help from their school counselor explaining to admissions officers exactly what went on. Oh, that's very interesting. So what would you say in your experience would make a good college candidate? Universities are looking for three abstract qualities in college candidates. But before we get into those qualities, I want to talk about the evaluation process because most universities don't need to judge most candidates qualitatively. When universities are judging candidates, they're first trying to determine who's worth considering in their applicant pool at all. They'll use two quantitative factors before they start looking at qualitative factors to weed the application pool down to a manageable amount. Those are class rank, school rank, and GPA considered altogether as a sort of academic index, and standardized test scores, SATs or ACTs. Students who are below the interquartile range, the 25th percentile marker for the university they're applying to, often get weeded out in this very first round before their resume or essays are even read. Now, after students make it through the quantitative benchmark that they've established, they have at least the SAT or ACT and GPA, class rank, school rank required to be considered by their university. Admissions officers ask themselves two questions. The first is, is this applicant smart enough to do well in classes? And the second is, how else can this applicant contribute to my campus? So after the candidates with bad numbers are cut, 
Admissions officers are trying to answer that first question, looking for students who have the intellectual vitality to contribute meaningfully to their campus. And this is a tricky term, so let me define it a little more precisely. Intellectual vitality is a student's independent love of learning, their desire and drive to explore things about which they're passionate in a way that extends beyond the classroom and beyond what's required. Consistently, students who get into top tier schools are curious and motivated to follow up on that curiosity in meaningful ways. Very often, this takes the form of an internship, a research project, some way of collaborating with a bigger organization that's interested in that topic or that field in a way that lets a student magnify their efforts. Demonstrating this intellectual vitality is the first key to establishing fit with a university. Top tier universities don't consider students who have good grades, good test scores, but lack vitality. Once this is established, admissions officers will still have more students than they can admit into their program. Once they've got candidates who have decent candidacy, who have good grades, good test scores, evidence of intellectual vitality, they want to know how they can assemble that large pool of potential applicants into a strong class body. It's their job to pick out leadership and service as two key variables that show what candidates can do on campus. The way I like to explain this to my students is that admissions officers are trying just as hard to find great applicants as students are as trying to find great universities. A lot of students in such a competitive admissions process can start to feel as if they're being judged or if they're disliked before they, that they're disliked before their applications even read. And I sympathize with the enormous emotional pressure these kids are under, but I find it really helpful to keep in mind that your goal when you're doing leadership and you're performing community service is to give the admissions officers reading your application talking points to advocate for your admission to their colleagues and to their boss, the dean and assistant dean. When students do meaningful community service that reflects their values, that requires them to grow, to innovate, they give admissions officers a way to distinguish themselves from the legion of students who just do what they're required to do who join a service organization, uh, ones that are common in my, in my region are National Honor Society, YES, or Key Club, and more or less go places that they're told to do and do what they are asked. When Ivy Scholars help students establish service projects, we look for nonprofits that have a mission that corresponds with something deep within that student's background or psyche, a cause they're really passionate about. And then we do our best to build a connection between the student and nonprofit to find a project on which they can collaborate so that when our students are writing about their service, they're not just saying they did what they're told, they found something that needed to be done and then they accomplished it. There's four variables I look for when I'm helping students build great evidence of leadership and service. The first is the ability to conceptualize a vision. We want students to have some clear understanding of the change they're gonna make in the world. The second is the ability to define a plan. A lot of students have wishes, but a vision without a plan for execution is just that, a wish. The third is the ability to delegate pieces of this plan to others. Universities want to admit students who are great at collaborating. They don't need smart individual monads within the university. They need students who will be great at working with other members of the student body. So the ability to delegate is key. And finally, and this is the aspect so many candidates miss in their essays, universities need to know that their students will be able to troubleshoot when things go wrong. Too many students shoot themselves in the foot by trying to avoid mentions of how they dealt with adversity or only framing adversity in the most positive light possible in a way that ends up whitewashing their actual accomplishments. When Ivy Scholars is helping students build standard applications, we make sure we confront the adversity they faced 
in a way that respects it and respects how challenging it is to be a teenager who wants to accomplish something, but doesn't have so many of the adult skills that are developed in college and early career. We want universities to see that our students aren't just committed to following up on opportunities. They're committed to when things go wrong, learning how to become the kind of people who can make them right again. Oh, that's fantastic, especially since through an application, you have to give this sort of emotional intelligence across as well. And the best way that you can do that is how did you overcome a challenge and how do you face that adversity? You talked about kind of channeling your passion into these extracurriculars and kind of passion projects. Is there any specific type of extra, uh, extracurriculars or volunteering you'd recommend doing? I think students probably already know better than I do what it is they ought to do. And my job isn't so much finding the opportunity as evoking it from them. Finding if students are passionate about helping orphaned, abused, or underprivileged children, about protecting the environment, about working with wildlife to rehabilitate them. What's most important here isn't the type of service, but the attitude students bring to it. But I do have a bit of advice for you and for all our listeners, especially those who are hearing what I'm saying and thinking, wow, Sasha, this sounds great, but how am I going to do this? The most important thing when it comes to service and leadership and building up this profile is to start by getting involved. Those basic organizations I mentioned, like National Honor Society, are great for beginning with volunteer work, uh, often in the form of picking up trash at a local park or tutoring children at a local middle school, the sorts of things that might not be standout items on a resume, but can teach students about what they find most important. I found a lot of students who wanted to build their people and communication skills started with tutoring. And a lot of students who are passionate about far larger scale environmental projects started with things as simple as picking up trash at a local park. My advice to students and their parents listening is that as soon as you get involved, you're starting a learning process for discovering what you really care about. And every time you're doing a little bit of work, and seeing how things can be done bigger, better, more efficiently, you're getting yourself that much closer to an Ivy League application. Sasha, what were you involved in when you were in high school that you put on your resume, just out of curiosity? I got a really amazing opportunity through the Fort Bend Gifted and Talented Mentorship Program to work with Dr. Lawrence McCullough, who is the Dalton Tomlin Chair at the Baylor Center for Health Policy and Medical Ethics. It was a tremendously important job he had helping doctors build ethical guidelines they've used for cases of risk management, especially when pregnant women were in danger of losing their fetus, their child. I worked with them on the criteria for the use of something called an exit procedure, uh, which is used to save fetuses in cases where the mother's body is no longer able to support her child and a baby needs to be born before the natural course would take place. It was uh, terrifying and stressful to be involved in some of these meetings where 10 to 12 experienced physicians would be gathered and discussing the criteria by which they judge their cases. And I spent uh, I'd say 99% of my time listening in awe, but I was honored to be trusted with the opportunity to sit in on some of the most important discussions in, in, um, in family medicine um, being held and learning about the way, not only that we as, as philosophers and medical ethicists make these decisions, but as human beings communicate them to patients. Uh, if I remember correctly, you were pre-med also in college in your undergrad? That's correct. Oh, as was I. 
This was I. So we followed similar paths. When I was in high school, I did, was very involved in scouting. I'm actually an Eagle Scout. So that actually opened a lot of doors to a lot of broad uh, avenues for me to explore in terms of my pre-med experience. What kind of uh, channeled that was I got to help start medical explorers over at Winthrop University Hospital a lifetime ago when I was in Boy Scouts through one of the Scout Masters. And that was just a good connection. So I always recommend... You know, something through, you can find uh, organizations through the library, any local organizations, but scouting, I always ship that because that opens up a lot of opportunities, a lot of eclectic, random, different things that you can try out to kind of see what you're passionate about there. You know, you were talking kind of like this maturity that goes into, you know, finding the right organization that you want to spend your time in. But one thing I hear a lot of students tell me is, is it too late to join any clubs? I think the answer to this is always no. Students who want to make a difference, who want to learn, who want to be a part of something bigger than themselves should always take that opportunity and should communicate what they're trying to do and why they find it valuable as clearly as possible in their essays. I don't think there's ever been a time in a few thousand students in my career, I've told someone there's no point trying to become better. If you have the opportunity to be better, go for it. All right. And, you know, we can't have this conversation of applying to college and becoming the perfect candidate without talking about standardized testing. So there is super scoring and score choice. We do talk about that on one of our most popular episodes that we have. How many times can you take the SAT? Uh, You can find that on preppodcast.com. But Sasha, what would you have to say about the SATs, ACTs, super scoring and score choice when it comes to college applications? I'd turn it over to the expert, Naka. I, I've heard you speak before in this podcast incredibly passionately, eloquently, and with fantastic <laughs> precision of detail about the topic. And to tell the truth, I think you're a lot better versed in that than I am. All right. So to keep it simple then, uh, it's you can take the SAT as many times as you want, but with super scoring kind of alleviates that stress that you can take it you know, on average about two to three times, but take the best math and best English score to combine those. It makes you look more competitive, makes the college's most higher scores at the end of the day. Uh, but score choice also gives you the opportunity to kind of hide your scores. This kind of alleviates that stress that was on students to get the SATs one and done that you can put your best foot forward. So it's not about taking the SAT a lot. It's not about over-testing yourself. It's about doing your prep well, doing a lot of prep, and then taking your tests. And colleges will take those best numbers. And our recommendation is, you know, if you're going for an early application or early decision, try to get your testing done before October. You could send in the November scores, but you might not be able to see it before then. Now, back to the application side of things, Sasha, uh, what would you say can make your application stand out? I get this question so much. I've dedicated an entire page on my website. If you go to idscholars.net slash essays, you'll see we built this big standout essays archive of some of our best students over the past five years. Let me talk about the one who's very top of the list, Nika Filipov, who's accepted early decision to Columbia. Now, Nika was something of a dark horse candidate. Um, She had to move schools multiple times and her test scores were below the 25th percentile for Columbia, but she was accepted in the first round, the early decision round, because her personal statement and supplementals were so amazingly on point. There were two things that made this work really well. The first is this student demonstrated extraordinary emotional intelligence. As an applicant to an engineering discipline, she faced really stiff competition from students who'd done great research, who had gotten deep into the weeds of the technicalities. Nika had some familiarity with that area as well, but even more impressively, she had the ability to unite people, to bring people together on engineering projects and use their skills productively. We discussed this in her essay, and 
to bring it to life, we created this framing device. She'd um, participated in this personality survey that assigned different students different animals uh, that described their personalities. Some were peacocks, some were lions, some were koalas. We used this personality survey as a framing device to add color and humor to Nika's ability to recognize different students' talents and where and how they could best contribute, and came up with an absolutely fantastic story about how she led her engineering team to an incredible success. What all this boils down to is that this student showed that they were likable in a smart way, not just smart. Universities want to admit students who will be great additions to their class body and not just students who are capable of performing intellectually. Showing that this student could bring a level of collaboration to the intellectual discourse that would take place in classes got her a spot ahead of students who had better test scores or who had done more in the technical side of engineering because Columbia trusted that if they admitted her, she'd be able to lead their students to success just like she did in high school. Tremendous. And and it's once again about holistic review. It's not your scores aren't going to be a guaranteed silver bullet to get you into college. You have to be a well-rounded person. You have to be a good person. That's what I always like to tell my students. So many of our SAT students start in high school around 10th grade prepping for that PSAT. That's kind of their introduction to kind of this college admissions uh, world. And while we don't actively encourage putting all this pressure so early in their schooling, especially before high school, let the kids be kids, if parents do want to get a head start on the younger siblings, if they are listening to this, what are some pieces of advice that you would give to those parents? Parents should focus on interest development for eighth and ninth graders. Helping your child find something they're passionate about and then start to get involved and giving them the parental support and structure that children need when they're just getting into something that requires maturity, commitment, responsibility, helping them build a comfort with making those commitments. That's what's going to build your child the platform to succeed when they're in 10th and 11th grade and committing themselves to building candidacy for college applications more seriously. So, Sasha, let's talk about the human aspect of this college applications, that when the students do send in these scores, these applications, these basically themselves on a piece of paper, how do the college counselors kind of handle that? It's not just computers making these decisions for them. Generally, the first round involves transcript review, broken down by different geographic and demographic factors. Admissions officers want to find students who've demonstrated course rigor, that they're pursuing the most competitive courses available to them within their high school. A note of comfort to all our listeners out there, if your high school is one of those that doesn't offer a lot of AP or IB or honors level courses, that's never counted against you. All top tier universities make sure to judge students by the standards of their school, not by the standards of the general applicant body. In corollary, though, if you're one of those students who goes to an ultra competitive high school, you'd better be able to handle the heat in the kitchen, so to speak. After the transcript review process, after the quantitatives are done and test scores are analyzed and the bottom of the applicant pool is cut, admissions officers have to find students who are smart enough to do well in classes, and they look for evidence of intellectual vitality. Once that's done, once they've found students who've learned things, who've pursued knowledge for its own sake, they're looking for students who can meaningfully contribute to campus, students who've demonstrated leadership, the ability to conceptualize a vision, define a plan, delegate pieces of that plan to others, and then troubleshoot when things go wrong. They also want students who've committed to service towards their values. They want to know if they let a student into their campus, that student will use the education they get at that university to make the world a better place. I see so many students applying for popular majors, finance and computer science come to mind as the top two, lose out on this opportunity to build their profile. Even students who want into majors that traditionally aren't seen as philanthropic or altruistic 
have the potential to use the skills and knowledge they're gaining at university for the betterment of the world. And I always encourage applicants to include that in their essays because there's never a bad time to get back. Certainly not when you're applying to college. Absolutely. That was fantastic, Sasha. So let's wrap up this episode. What would be your hashtag pro tip for becoming the perfect college candidate? Keep a journal of extraordinary anecdotes and little details that can add color and texture to your college essays when you're writing them 18 months to three years later. Keeping track of those little moments of what it was like to be you when you were doing the toughest stuff in your high school career will make it so much easier for you and whoever you're collaborating on writing an essay with to come up with the best material that's truest and most genuine to your character and your candidacy. All right. That was a fantastic episode. I want to thank our guest, Sasha Chada, for coming on. Sasha, if people want to reach out to you or get in contact, uh, how can they do so? They'll find me at my website, ivyscholars.net, which is now also ivyscholars.com. There's a consultation link to book with me at the very top. So once again, Sasha, thank you for being on the show. My name is Naka, and this has been Hashtag Prepped.